This is the secret history of gun control and the violent aftermath. My name is Paul Gordon with iState.tv, and I'm here with and Professor Rambo. How are you doing today? Good. Very, good. very good. Excellent. We are, in, in light of all of the gun hysteria that has flown through most people's social media circles, uh, we decided to do a show on uh, just 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 to get a little bit of a recap of of what gun control in America has meant. So what follows are excerpts from various sources that outline two main aspects of the racist history of gun control in America: the laws and the bloody actions the laws uh, enabled. And one of them we've actually talked about in a past show, but I have one, and I know Professor Rambo, you've reviewed the notes. I have one that 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 is even more stunning. Blows than the, one the mind. Blows the mind. So in the first part, we're going to look at state and national laws that go all the way back to the 17th century. That's the 1600s to you and me. And they continue through to 1968. In the second part, we're going to look at four major events where blacks were targeted for outright assassination, including the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921 and the less talked about, but perhaps most dramatic of the four events, the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898. And I'm just willing to bet that most of you out there listening have never, ever heard of the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898. But we are saving the worst for last. So that'll be the last thing that, that we go over. Now, the purpose of this report is to highlight an essential element to the reality of power, which is force. And... And you've you've heard me talk about my my power theories, and I deal with. Uh, but for me, power is the ability to act or influence the actions of others. And there's four major spheres of of influence: social, demonstrable, ideational, and power. Or, or excuse me, force. So when social, demonstrable, and ideational influence fail to get the other side to do what you want them to do, and you're insisting that they do it, then force is is what comes to play. And what we're going to go over is exactly how that played out. Gun control is about control, period. I know uh, Tucker Carlson recently did the show. I think you told me about that. He said gun, gun control is people, but control. I would just say, no, gun control is just about control, period. That's it. I'm just going to say that. And it uses the maternal and paternal instincts of humans to invoke a protectionist instinct, but one that le leads them to empower the very beast that unleashed hell in the first place. Yeah, I'm going to get quite dramatic for this show. And I hope as you review this history, you come to see the futility of placing in the hands of the few the power of deadly force. I would like to add one thing. That gun control being racist is one component of contemporary Jim Crow. We're not going to get into all that tonight, 
But keep that in mind that it's one very big component of contemporary Jim Crow. Yes, and we actually were kind of talking about doing another show, which will deal with some of the other aspects of of what you're talking about. So we're going to get to the first part of this. Before there was a United States of America, the colonies of America, they they immediately began experiencing with gun control long before maybe you ever thought of it. So this part of the show is called The Racist Gun Control Laws and Rulings. And this is pre-Civil War. So I'm going to, as if you hear anything, you want to interrupt me, feel free, obviously. So in 1640, Virginia, race-based total gun and self-defense banned, quote, prohibiting Negroes slave and free from carrying weapons, including clubs. In South Carolina in 1712, race-based total gun ban, an act for the better ordering and governing of Negroes and slaves. Now, this next one is really interesting. This is in 1792. 1792. That that means the Constitution has been ratified, okay? Just so you know. So blacks excluded from the militia, i.e. law-abiding males, thus instilled with a right to own guns. Uniform Militia Act of 1792, quote, called for the enrollment of every free, able-bodied, white male citizen between the ages of 18 and 45 to be in the militia and specified that every militia member was to provide himself with a musket or firelock, a bayonet, and ammunition. Notice, every white male. In 1811, Louisiana, complete gun ban for slaves. Yeah, they actually had to write a law to make sure that you understood that your slaves could not have guns. In Florida, slave and freed black homes searched for gun guns for confiscation. And, and it was called an act to govern patrols in 1825 Act of Florida. So Section 8 provided that white citizen patrols, and it, and it specified white citizen patrols, shall enter into all Negro houses and suspected places and search for arms and other offensive or improper weapons and may lawfully seize and take away such... I love that word, lawfully. Lawfully. It's, it's law, this is just more proof. Law is not morality. Go ahead. Correct. Oh, it's <laughs> it's full of law. And all of these laws at the time... Were were lawful. Yeah, they yeah. they were lawful. Laws. They were lawful. You know, you're following my laws. In Maryland, race based. Uh, this is an 1831 race based total gun ban. In December 13, 1831, legislative session, Maryland entirely prohibited free blacks from carrying arms. Free blacks. Okay, so uh, even if you were freed, you weren't. Texas, 1840, complete gun ban for slaves, an act concerning slaves. 1840 laws of Texas, 
uh, of the Texas Acts of eight and uh, end of the Texas Acts of 1850 prohibited slaves from using firearms altogether. Now this this next one, this one's a real doozy. This is a U.S. Uh, uh, court before, ruling. Before you get into the serious stuff, not that the other stuff isn't serious, but it it occurs to me that the founding fathers were very much aware of gun control. It's not like oh, it was a yeah. new issue. They it's knew. not like it's not like hey, th they didn't understand, and um, we need gun control today. Back then, there were multiple laws throughout the colonial period that limited gun ownership, and they knew that clearly. Yeah. And they knew, and know they, exactly. And they knew exactly what they were doing when they phrased the Second Amendment the way they did. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, they also knew exactly what they were doing with the laws that they were writing to try to circumvent that Second Amendment. Well, yeah, but, okay, that's a whole other story. Yes. Right. We'll get to that as this unfolds. In, 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 in 1857, a high court upholds slavery since blacks, not citizens, in Dred Scott v. Stanford, 60 U.S., whatever the code is, Chief Justice Taney, so this is the... Uh, uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice Taney argued if members of the African race were, quote, citizens, unquote, they would be exempt from the special, quote, police regulations applicable to them. It would give to persons of the Negro race full liberty of speech to hold public meetings upon political affairs. And here's here's the big one and to keep and carry arms wherever they want. The U.S. Supreme Court held that descendants of Africans who were imported into this country and sold as slaves were not included nor intended to be included under the word, quote, citizens, unquote, in the Constitution, whether emancipated or not and remain without rights or privileges except such as those which the government might grant them, thereby upholding slavery. Now, you just take that sentence there, the, which the government might grant, grant them, thereby upholding slavery. All you folks out there that are looking to have the government grant you your rights, you're pretty much acknowledging you're a slave because that's how that works. What year was that? What it was 1857. 57. Now, this ruling, I happen to know from other readings, mm. this this ruling was one of those moments that really began to accelerate the descent into the maelstrom that became the Civil War. It was, it was a much vilified ruling on one part and a much celebrated ruling on the other part. And then we're going to get to the last element in the pre-Civil War period, and that is I'm, black. I'm curious. Go ahead. Wait, I'm curious. When did it become law that if you're born in this country, you're automatically a citizen? When does that enter into formal law? Because if you're I don't brought know here when... as a slave, but your children are born here, well, if you're brought here as an illegal immigrant and your children are born here, your children are automatically citizens. Why wouldn't those 
descendants of Africans who were born here be automatic citizens? Because the Supreme Court it? said so. That's oh, okay. why. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're I'm looking so sorry. for some sort of uh, rule of law, absolutarian judgment that you can look, you know, discern and say, oh, well, no, no, no. No, no, they, they, they twisted words around and did what they did because they wanted certain outcomes and they managed to get certain outcomes because they're lawyers. And lawyers, well, that's well, all uh, to me, all a lawyer is is a semantics expert and a semantics expert in a very specific field of language, contract law, contract language, if you will. So in 1865, in Mississippi, blacks require police approval to own guns, unless in the military. Now, this is near the end of the Civil War. Mississippi statute of 1865 prohibited blacks not in the military and not licensed so to do by the board of police of his or her county from keeping or carrying firearms of any kind or any ammunition, dirk, or Bowie knife. By the way, in America, there are plenty of areas where you actually have to get the approval of your local police department to own guns. So, <laughs> yeah, what does that yeah. make those folks? So that's the prehistory or the pre-Civil War part. What, what what thoughts do you have based on everything that you've heard so far? Uh, not many. Just if you want my guns. Come and get them because I ain't giving this shit up. <laughs> That's, you know, so many uh, details of this just uh, chafe me so, chafe me so. Um, they don't this sound is unsimilar not... to the things that are being done today, right? Correct. And so I, I can't help but be... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Animated. I feel animated. You're, ver you're trying expressive. very hard not to spill out certain language. Yeah. I'm trying to improve my Good man. Good man. language. I'm feeling animated uh, and perturbed um, with what I hear now. And the solutions that people are offering up, 90% uh, of them are just uh, butkus and there's 10% that actually have merit and we can go into that later, but, um, we might not, I don't yeah, know. Maybe um, we will. I don't know. Th there are some really good solutions coming out and most of it is involving arming people, not disarming people. Um, but, uh, the history yeah, gonna... of the history that you're, you're going over, um, Jeez Louise, how do you even begin to address it? It, it? The injustice that prevails through the entirety of the founding of the United States is so deep and so pervasive that looking at it is just infuriating. Uh, to, to treat people like this, uh, to deny them simple human rights of self-defense by using the law and then being moralistic about, oh, you know, it's the law. We're, 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 we live a lawful life. 
Well, they right. when they were interning the Japanese people, they, they were doing what the law said. It was lawful. Which At which point you have to question, what is law? And why bother? Um, wow. There are... There are a, ten laws, ten laws that mean anything to me. Everything else is a means of collecting taxes. And we're gonna we're gonna push forward to please do. Now we're going to look at the racist gun control laws and rulings. This is post Civil War, and this is the. We're going to go from the end of the Civil War to the start of the 20th century. And this is going to be a wonderful trip that we're all going to enjoy fantastically. Or blood will shoot out of your eyes. Whichever. So in 1866 in North Carolina, rights of blacks can be changed by legislature. North Carolina Black Code. If you don't know anything about the Black Codes, you need to look them up. All persons of color who are now inhabitants of this state shall be entitled to the same privileges. This sounds good, right? And are subject to the same burdens and disabilities as by the laws of the state were conferred on or were attached to free persons of color prior to the ordinance of emancipation except as the same may be changed by law. In other words, all the conditions that existed that prohibited you from doing things that white people could do, yeah, they still exist. You're 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 still you're a free person. And remember, as as we highlighted in the pre-Civil War laws, they had already created laws to to uh, prohibit the actions of free persons, free free blacks, to distinguish them from quote unquote citizens. See, this is what they were hanging everything on that word citizen, you know, because this is what lawyers do. In eighteen seventy, in Tennessee, I think this is a really important ruling that real or the, a really important law. It actually. I'm giving examples because everything that I'm giving here, there's multiple examples of this. The Saturday night special laws that I'm going to talk about here, this is the first example, but many states would follow suit. So you had the Saturday night special economic handgun ban passed, and in the first legislative session in which they gained control, white supremacists packed, quote, passed, quote, now, I mean, you listen to the title of this legislation and ask me, are they not still doing this? An act to preserve the peace and prevent homicide. That was the name of the legislation. And it banned the sale of all handguns except the expensive Army and Navy model handgun. And you know why? Because whites already owned it and they could afford to buy it, while blacks largely could not. And this is a this is a quote here. The cheap revolvers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries were referred to as suicide special. The Saturday night special label had not become widespread spread until reformers and politicians took up the gun control cause during the 1960s. Don't worry, we're getting to that. The source of this recent concern about cheap revolvers, as their need labels suggest, has much in common with the concerns of the gun law initiators of the post-Civil War South, as B. 
Bruce Briggs has written in the public interest, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that the Saturday Night Special is emphasized because it is cheap and being sold to a particular class of people. Now, herein, we're not going to get to the to, to too much here, but we're going to, this is another show that we're thinking about doing. The Saturday Night Special laws, they weren't just targeting blacks because they didn't just want to prevent blacks from having the means to self-defense. They also wanted to prevent poor people, poor white people from having the means of self-defense. And well, let's just go on. I'll just, I'll just let that float out there for now. In 1875, uh, the U.S. U.S. Supreme Court rules that uh, uh, high court rules that it has no power to stop KKK members from disarming blacks in the United States versus Cruikshank. A member of the KKK, Cruikshank, had been charged with violating the rights of two black men to peaceably assemble and to bear arms. The U.S. Supreme Court held. Now, we've talked about this ruling before. This ruling basically holds that the federal government can't protect private citizens, that if the, the private citizens' rights are violated, that they have to appeal to the states. This was a significant ruling at the time that had a lot of ramifications that went far beyond what it is that they intended to. The, the, the whole ruling was simply a way to prevent... Uh, charging and convicting white people for murdering black people in an event. I'm not going to mention it, but it's coming up. We're going to talk about the event that this is based on. So the court held that for protection against private criminal action, individuals are required to look to state governments. And then this, this, this is a, this is a quote. And this is from, uh, where is this from? I can't find where it's from. Okay, I'll just read the quote, but this is from Wikipedia. The doctrine in Cruikshank that blacks would have to look to state government for protection against criminal conspiracies gave the green light to private forces, often with the assistance of state and local governments that sought to subjugate the former slaves with the protective arm of the federal government withdrawn protection of black lives and property was left to largely hostile state governments. And it wouldn't be until the 1960s under Johnson where the federal government was actually called in to, well, it started in the 50s, uh, where the federal government was uh, called in to actually protect blacks from having their rights infringed upon in, in large part by their own local and state government. And then the last one on this section, 1893 Alabama. First all gun economic ban passed. Alabama placed extremely heavy business and or transactional taxes on the sales of handguns in attempt to quote, and this is from the book uh, Gun Control, White Man's Law by William R. Tonso, uh, to put handguns out of the reach of blacks and poor whites. And we're just about ready to go into the uh, 20th century. But before we do, what are your thoughts so far? After hearing this more, latest round. Well, it's more of the same. It's the exact same thing that they've done 
that they're trying to do uh, in contemporary times yeah. and that they've accomplished in inner cities. The only difference is they now have the victims chanting in defense of the victimizers. Right. The victims the, are calling out for more of this. Right. Because you, you have the Democrats, the inner city Democrats who control all the big cities out there who have convinced minorities and poor people that giving up their rights is a better way of going forward. I mean, it is so diabolical and evil what these people are doing. It's offensive to the core. Yeah. And it's, again, they're, they're actually clamoring for it. The folks that, and it, and it's not just, I'm not just talking about blacks. I'm talking about a lot of the folks in these cities. They're, they're calling for it. They're demanding it. They're sending their kids out to march for it to, to try to force, I guess, I don't know how they could force it, but I don't really think they're forcing politicians. They're giving the politicians political cover to write the next round of legislation because what the government understands, what the, what, what any tribe group special interest understands if you are using force to coercively badger another group, you want to make sure that that group does not have access to the means of self-defense. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, let's get to the 20th century. Now, we're only going to go up. We're going to go up to 1968. Before you do. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Before you do, in a previous episode, we talked about um, media zombies, people who get so emotional about subjects that uh, they're worse than slaves because a, a slave at least still longs to be free, still longs for the rights that everyone else has. A media zombie does not. A media zombie is a propagandized person who who is emotional about all of the issues and stops thinking critically and logically about them and instead responds emotionally and th this is what a lot of people in the cities have become that they, they are true media zombies they cannot think outside of their emotional bubble right and so they're they're easily manipulated uh, incredibly easy pickings for the uh, the crafty politician, and Let's... and the and this person thinks that the media is independent of the politics and is giving them information that is like right down the middle and and not having a horse in the race when in fact they have many horses in the race, right. I mean, there's. I mean, there's a lot I could unpack from what you just said there, but yeah, let's go keep forward. going. <laughs> so now we're to the racist gun control laws and rulings, the 20th century, and you notice if you recognize that picture there. I know you don't see it, Professor Rambo, but that picture there, that part of that picture, that's Bobby Seal of the Black Panthers. And over to the right, you see a Black Panther at a Black Panther rally standing in front of a statue of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial. And in the center there, 
you see Ronald Reagan celebrating his win becoming the governor of California. It's all going to make sense. Trust me. 1906, Mississippi, race-based confiscation through record-keeping. That's right. Oh, great. This oh. is... This is hey, a registry. That sounds familiar. Yeah, it's a registry. Uh, Mississippi enacted the first registration law for retailers in 1906, requiring them to maintain records of all pistol and pistol ammunition sales and to make such records available for inspection on demand. And you know what they were looking for? Uh, Irish? Yeah, they were looking to make sure that the blacks were not purchasing guns. Oh, the blacks. Yeah. Oh, they were looking yeah, for the black. That's you what should, that was about. Dude, but back then, the Norwegians, they were crafty and dangerous. But they flew under the radar. <laughs> they oh. flew under the radar. I thought they were looking for the Norwegians. Nope. It was the blacks. Nope. The yeah. blacks. In 1911, uh, New York. This is a very famous law. It's... Uh, one of the historic anti-human, anti-liberty, anti-progressive laws. And I'm going to give you a little bit more information about it than maybe you didn't know before. Uh, police choose who can own guns lawfully. The law is called Sullivan Law. And anybody who's studied gun control knows about the Sullivan Law of New York in 1911. It required... Police permission via a permit issued at their discretion to own a handgun. It's still still in existence, by the way. The Sullivan, the, the Sullivan Law still still is extant. Extant? Is this, which, well, it's still in play. Unpopular minorities were and are routinely denied permits. As a matter of fact, in the city of New York, there's only about 3,000 licensed handgun you know that 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 aren't part of the police, non-police folks. There are about three thousand people that have been granted a permit to carry a handgun in the city of New York. In the city of New York, and uncoincidentally, and this is kind of getting back to a, a store, a show that we're probably going to do in the near future. Most of the folks on that list of three thousand, they're very wealthy. As a matter of fact, one of them, one of them is Donald Trump. But in no 19... way. Yeah, yeah. Donnie boy? Donnie boy got his. Uh, in, in, in 1911, the law was not as strictly enforced as it is now. In 1911, it was much more highly selective, and it, and it targeted the undesirables. Mostly blacks, but not just the blacks. And yes, on that list were the Irish. They were also <laughs> kind of not wanting to get the Irish. Basically, any downtrodden group that the powers that be viewed as being undesirable, they wanted to keep them from having the means to self-defense because they knew when push came to shove that they were going to flop to apply force to to make sure that they complied with their wishes. 1967 California. Here we go. For All those you of Ronald you Reagan. Republicans, stop, stop right there. Yeah. If you're a conservative, you might yeah, want to turn this off right now. This is what you're going to want to do if you're a conservative. Your myth, your la, myth, la, la, la. Go ahead. Your myth is about to be shattered. Yeah, yeah. In 1967, as governor of California, 
Ronald Reagan. That's right, Ronald Reagan. Well, well, that Ronald, that's right, signed the Mulford Act into law in 1967. Written by Republican Assemblyman Don Mulford, the legislation was the most sweeping state edict in all the country at that time, prohibiting the more or less free carrying of firearms in public. And it went along with the rest of his heavy-handed entire law and order agenda. And but he was, a, he was a Democrat at that point, wasn't he? No, he's a Republican. He became a Republican back way he back then. Republican governor, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I thought he became uh, a Republican later in his life, but no, I, wow. I'm not sure exactly where he became a Republican, but it was well before he was governor. Uh, uh, it, so it went along with the rest of his. You know, uh, this is a uh, Wikipedia. Or no, this isn't Wikipedia. This is from blog.independent.org. Uh, and this is Anthony Gregory writing in an article called The Panthers Were Right and Reagan Was Wrong on Gun Control. So he wrote that sentence. The purpose of the law, he writes, was to disarm the Black Panthers. And yeah, that's exactly, that's that's what it was for. It was a radical leftist group that openly carried firearms, kept an eye out on the police, and even took their rifles to the state capitol to protest what they decried as racist legislation so here you have whatever you think about the black panthers they did understand one thing they understood the reality of power and they understood when push came to shove when we get to the next part of our our show which is coming up real soon you're gonna understand where the black panthers are coming from they're not they're not coming out of a void they're coming from a long history that goes well after the civil war i need to back this conversation up just a wee bit. Okay. So as a governor, he was strict on guns as a Republican. And as a president in 1983, was it? I think it was passed, 86. Was it 86 or 83? I, always I think it was 83 that, that they yeah. passed some more yeah, stringent even... firearms laws for the whole country, not just California. Uh-huh. Yeah, he is not very good on guns. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. 19, whatever, I thought it was 86, but it might have been 83. The, uh, it was an amendment to the, to the Firearms Act passed in 19, was it 1937? And, yeah. uh, part of it was, uh, he's the one who banned fully automatic firearms, by the way. That was Ronald Reagan. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Ronnie. Thank so you. So in nine, go ahead. That's all I got. All right. In 1968, we get the Gun Control Act of 1968. Avowed anti-gun journalist Robert Sherrill frankly admitted that the Gun Control Act of 1968 was, quote, passed not to control guns, but to control blacks. The Gun Control Act of 1968 was passed not to control guns, but to control blacks. And inasmuch as a majority of Congress did not want to do the former, but were ashamed to show that their goal was the latter, there was, the result was that they did neither. Indeed, this law, the first gun control passed by Congress in 30 years, was one of the grand jokes of our time. 
First of all, bear in mind that it was not passed in one piece, but was a combination of two laws, the Saturday Night Special and other guns. And the Gun Control Act of 1968 is essentially similar to the uh, Saturday Night Special laws that were passed by uh, states, one of which I outlined. And it was aimed to basically keep cheap guns out of the hands of poor people, especially black poor people. So there you go. We have gone through. Um, I mean, we could go further because more stuff happened oh, in the 20th century. Just a but that's side all. note. Just a quick side note. Go ahead. We're in, in the talk part here. In, the, in today's environment, with manufacturers producing AR-type rifles for 500 bucks and, and semi-auto handguns for 250 that are reliable. Yeah, these aren't like those Jimenez's or whatever. They're, yeah. You know, ain't uh, those. The people who created these laws must be turning in their graves. Thank God. Yes, yes. Now, now that we've taken you through, we, we've only hit upon some of the more, I don't know, glaring examples in, in rulings and law. And, I mean, we didn't even address the, the, the was it, 1937 Act under FDR. So we didn't even hit all the major ones. We're just, we're just hitting some just to give you a, a, a sense of, of the of the racist element of gun control. Now what we're about ready to show you, we're going to get to the racist acts empowered by the disarmament of blacks. If if you, if you want to, you know, when people tell you you're being paranoid and thinking that you need guns to protect you against your own government, it might not be your own government. It might just be a a group of very well connected people who are also, well, they're the government and they're just your neighbors. And that's what we're going to see coming up here. So we're going to get to, oh, yes. Why don't we get to Mississippi? Mississippi, 1871. This is the Meridian Race Riot. The Meridian Race Riot, and this is these are from Wikipedia entries that I'm reading here. The Meridian Race Riot of 1871 was a race riot in Meridian, Mississippi, hence the title. Uh, and it happened in March of 1871. It followed the arrest of freedom accused a freedmen accused of inciting riots in a downtown fire and blacks organizing for self-defense, although the local KKK, I'll just say, chapter had attacked freedmen since the end of the Civil War, generally without punishment. The first local arrest under the 1870 Act to suppress the Klan was of a freedman. This angered the black community during the trial of black leaders. The presiding judge was shot in the courtroom and a gunfight erupted that killed several people. In the ensuing mob violence, whites killed as many as 30 blacks over the next few days. Whites drove the Republican mayor from office, and no person was charged or tried in the freedman's death. The Meridian riot was related to widespread post-war violence by whites to drive Reconstruction Repu Republicans from Alphas, Alphas and restore white supremacy. 
By the way, this is if you were back in these days and you said that there's systemic racism, you'd be totally correct. There's no doubt. Systemic racism all over the place. Although the Enforcement Acts helped suppress the Klan at this time, the Meridian Riot marked a turning point in Mississippi violence. And I want to let, let me, what, what do you got? You got any comments on on the on the Mississippi? I mean, this is we're kind of starting with. A, I mean, that's pretty horrible. It's horrendous. But in in this case, you're talking about folks that had no protection. They they had no, they weren't really well armed, and uh, it was my a mind, pretty easy, sla- easy slaughter. My mind drifts off to going back in time and handing out hundreds if not thousands of ARs to the right people. Yeah. But unfortunately, the reality is you can't go back in time and fix the evils that were perpetrated on innocent people. What you can do is situate the present in situate the present to educate and arm people who are vulnerable to similar attacks. And, and I say they are vulnerable to these attacks because if certain groups, certain quote-unquote undesirable groups start acting up, they will be on the receiving end of the government's wrath. Yes. Not much has and- changed. Yes, I'll I'll kind of get to that a little bit at the at the very end. Uh what you're looking at folk, well, I'm I'm going to go on to the next one. The next one this is now we're in Louisiana. It's eighteen seventy three. This is the Colfax Massacre. And this, by the way, we reference the Supreme Court ruling in eighteen seventy five. This is what produced that ruling. So the Colfax Massacre, or Colfax Riots, as the events are termed, on the 1950 state historic marker, let's just call it a massacre, though. They happened April 13th, 1873 in Colfax, Louisiana, where... It's hard to get an exact number. Uh, the numbers wi- vary wi- widely, but at some numbers, you know, 150 or so black men were were murdered by, well, they were murdered by white Southern Democrats. And it's considered to be the bloodiest single instance of racial carnage in the Reconstruction era. However, I'm not so sure that that's, actually true there may be something that was worse or just about the same so in the wake of the contested 1872 election for governor of louisiana and local offices a group of white democrat white democrats armed with rifles and a small cannon overpowered republican freedmen and state militia who were also black occupying the Grand Parish Courthouse in Colfax. By the way, that's state militia that's uh that's they're they're kind of affiliated with the NRA. So it's kind of how the NRA got its start. So most of the freemen were killed after they surrendered. Nearly fifty were killed later that night 
after being held as prisoners for several hours. Estimates of the number of dead have varied, ranging from 62 to 153. However, I've seen numbers as high as 300, so who knows. But three whites died, and the number of black victims, as it's written here, was difficult to determine because bodies have been thrown into the river or removed for burial. And Louisiana it had the high fatality, highest fatalities of any of the numerous violent events following the disputed gubernatorial contest in 1872 between Republicans and Democrats. Well, by the way, if you want to look and say, well, these teams have never been more violent. Wow, they're pretty violent in 1872. <laughs> in uh, I, I, need you to go back. I need you to go back and touch upon something that you just said. In, in passing, how does this, how is this the foundation of the NRA? The NRA was founded as a militia organization, and immediately it's, uh, a lot of its initial militia members were blacks and whites that supported blacks having rights. Where are you, where is that coming from? Because I've heard that disputed, actually. Have you? Yeah, where where's that cuz I I'd like to look that up. I don't I don't I don't have the specific data in front of me. Okay. But I know uh, that the NRA started as a militia in New York state. That part is undisputed. And that was in 1870. And when was this riot supposedly? 18 1873. Or I should say the supposed riot. 1873. No, it, was, it, was, okay. it was a massacre. It was a massacre. Right. Yeah. Basically, uh, white people tried to take guns from black people. Black people said no. White people started firing on black people. Black people fired back with some white uh, folks supporting them. And then the white people cornered them all in a building. And then and then they surrendered. And then they proceeded to massacre them them uh, afterwards now the 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 party by the way that is at play here is called the fusionist party you probably have never heard of it but it's going to play later on in our story and after this ruling the federal government after the the u.s uh supreme court ruling of united states versus Cruikshank. now united states versus Cruikshank was a result of of two whites who were actually arrested and charged for, with uh, impeding the rights of blacks, you know, impeding the right to bear arms. And it went to the United States Supreme Court, and that's when the United States Court, Supreme Court ruled that you can't expect the federal government to protect you. you got to turn to your local and state governments. So this ruling essentially nullified the Enforcement Act of 1870, which was intended to protect blacks from the KKK. So intimidation and black voter suppression continued unabated. Now, do you have any comments about this before we move on to our next? No. Okay. Let's just move on. We're going to skip uh, ahead in time before we come back because we're saving. I already told you what we're saving for last. Now we're going to talk about the Tulsa race riots of 1921. And we've talked about the Tulsa race riots in previous episodes of Full Auto, when Full Auto was a full show and not just a segment. 
Although today, this is kind of like a full, full auto show, right? So, Oklahoma, 1921. The Tulsa Race Riot, or Tulsa Race... Well, let's just call it the Tulsa Race Riot. It happened between May 31st and June 1st of 1921. And it began when a white mob started attacking residents and business of the African-American community of Greenwood in Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma. Now, Greenwood... It was the the richest black community in the country. And so the story goes that there was a black man who was accused of raping a white woman. Uh, evidence seems strongly to suggest that he was completely innocent. And so he was when he was in the courthouse, a mob gathered that was going to lynch him, a white mob. And so blacks came to the rescue of the black man. They had they were armed. Yeah, yeah, this community was not unarmed. They were yeah, not but, incapable. Okay, two side notes. Uh, this community was known as Black Wall Street because it was so yes. rich. Mm -hmm. And two, the white girl who was the victim came out and publicly said, he never touched me. And the white sheriff came out and said, uh, this is a good man. You all, you all need to go home. Nothing's happened here. Please and, proceed. And the newspapers, they published fake news. Out the no. They, no, they, fake news? They, That's they a published lie. all kinds of stories, basically saying he was caught red-handed and whipping people to, to a frenzy. To, and, sell, to sell papers? No, they would never do that. I don't even know if it was that. to sell papers. Maybe it was to sell papers. I'm not sure. They would what never... The newspapers would never fabricate stories in order to bump their sales and make their quotas for the month. They would never do that. They wouldn't do it then, and they wouldn't do it now. Come on now. Let's right. get real here. <laughs> I know. Never happened. Never happened. You know, this, this whole fake news thing is brand new. Brand new. It's a brand new phenomenon. It's not a new phenomenon. So uh, after... The, the the black uh, business owners basically came out to support one of their own and, and protect him from this unjust lynching. Well, then thousands of whites descended upon Greenwood, and the blacks fought back, but they were not a match for the whites because the whites had more weapons. And uh, one of the reasons they had heavier artillery was because they had government weapons and government sanction on their well, side. Well, they went to the reservist uh, uh, station and got airplanes and bombed right. these poor bastards. They were American aircraft from World War One were used to bomb an American city. And a lot of these folks, a lot of these folks, by the way, members of the government. This was an example of the government actually turning against you. And you were not armed enough, not, not prepared enough to be able to deal with what the government brought down upon you. Now, the numbers vary, but, but at least I would, you know, I... I don't know how many people died, and nobody seems to know exactly. But again, this is these are numbers. Uh, well, like the Oklahoma. All you need to know, but dude, all you need to know is that this community had hospitals and churches and schools wiped out. And, Go and on. 
and a real thriving community. All gone. Hospitals, gone. Churches, gone. Schools, gone. Businesses, gone. This whole community was completely decimated. The Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics officially recorded 39 dead, but the American Red Cross estimated 300, and I've I've seen numbers higher than that. I don't know. But one thing is for sure, Greenwood, like like you're saying, Greenwood is done. It's gone. It's, it's this 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 mecca, this this proof of black entrepreneurship that was, you know, the black community lifting itself up and doing great things. No, it, it didn't have a chance. Who knows what it would have spawned? What satellites would have emerged? It was crushed. It was crushed because they didn't have the means of self-defense, and it was really difficult for them to have the means of self-defense. So about well, ten thousand. Who there would have imagined that they needed anti-aircraft guns? No, no, I'm not blaming them at all. No, no, oh. no, no, no. I'm, I'm not. But I, I, you're right. Who, who would imagine that? Absolutely. So about 10,000 black people were left homeless and property damage amounted to more than $1.5 million in real estate and 750,000 in personal property, which in today's number is about 31 million. So now before we get to the last one, do you have anything more to say about the, uh, the Oklahoma, the, the, the Greenwood, the Tulsa, well, it was completely fabricated yes. by the news, by the the news media to sell newspapers. And like a week or two earlier, if I remember correctly, they lynched a white man for having supposedly had robbed a store or something that had never been proven. So the media there was hell bent on selling newspapers and they would do anything they had to do to drive the sales. And if innocent people were hurt who the hell cares they were making their money and once you start to dig a little deeper you start to realize that the powers that be in Tulsa uh, didn't like the fact that these uppity blacks were outperforming the locals no they, they didn't like something that at all. Had, something had to be done these people didn't know their place so instead instead of working with them and in, a, in this successful model, working with them and, and using them to facilitate growth in the greater community. No, no, no. We'll just fuck it. Sorry. We'll just murder them all. We'll just we'll just murder the competition. That it's it's infuriating. Right. Anyone who has a sense of justice, well, and decency, and I I've saved the worst for last. Yeah, I know. I know you did, so I'll just keep my mouth shut through the rest of it because because I I'm, I don't I can't promise that the f bombs won't come flying out. Let's let, let you can do it. You can do it. We're gonna get please, to please North. We're gonna get to North Carolina, eighteen ninety-eight. North Kakalaki. North Wilmington insurrection, also known as America's only successful coup d'etat that's right i love how they call these riots and insurrections like like it's well, no the this is an fault. insurrection this is actually like am, aptly well, named well it's the insurrection of white people against 
the well, yeah, the, the the, it's insurrectionist elected. against a democratically but, elected government. That's what we're going to talk these, about. But all of these titles seem to suggest that you know the Tulsa riots. Well, these people were rioting, so that something had to be done. These crazy people had to be. You know, well, they neutralized. call them race riots. Why, why, right. why, why call them race riots? No, why, what why, they should call them is white supremacist, white supremacist slaughter fields. Yeah, that they. Thank you. That's more accurate. Yeah, that that's that's the best way to describe these. So we're going to get to this one, and 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 I and I yeah, I went a little bit out of chronological order, but I think you'll understand why. So this is in. Uh, 1898, originally described by white Americans, I don't know who these white Americans are, but uh, not my name, as a race riot caused by blacks. There you go. Another <gasps> race riot. Yeah, Dude, but... People just can't control themselves. Yeah. Now, I'm going to be going over highlights here, and if you go to the show notes for the uh, the site uh, for, for, the, for this episode... I have a link to the to the full uh, article, and yeah, it, it 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 warrants reading the whole thing. We don't have time to go through the whole thing; it's very complicated. So we're just going to be kind of hitting the highlights here, just to give you an understanding of of what we're dealing with. And and at its core, what you're dealing with is one group of people that had a decided force advantage over another group of people and one of the reasons they had that decided force advantage was because they had gun control laws in their favor and you're going to also find out they also had market control in their favor so we're going to get to that so the coup occurred after the state's white conservative democrat party conspired and notice they said conservative. I don't know. If, whatever. Doesn't matter. Uh, uh, and led a mob of 2,000 white men to overthrow the legitimately elected local fusionist government. You really should look into the fusionists. Nobody talks about them because they were pretty much wiped out. And they were like the voice of of free blacks and the whites that supported the free blacks, the actual people who were actually striving for liberty. That's, that's essentially who they were. So they were expelling black leaders from the city, destroying the property and businesses of black citizens built up since the civil war, including the only black newspaper in the city and killing an estimated 60, possibly, probably more than 300 People. This is why I said uh, about the Colfax thing that not so fast on that. The worst. Uh, the red shirts left the convention and started terrorizing black citizens and their white allies in the eastern part of the state. They just the red shirts, by the way, these are the <coughs> the white supremacists, basically. It's really uh, I think it's appropriate that they were the red shirts. Commies. They destroyed property, ambushed citizens with weapon fire, and kidnapped people from their homes and whipped them at night with the goal of terrorizing them to the point where Republican sympathizers would be too afraid to vote or even register to do so. So a number of black men attempted to purchase guns and powder. Now here's where we're getting into that market. 
but the gun merchants, who were all white, refused to sell them any. And why do you think the gun merchants were all white? Because if a black man tried to start a business, it would be a little bit difficult. The merchants would also report to the clubs on any black person who tried to procure arms. Some blacks tried to circumvent the local merchants by trying to purchase gun outside the state, such as the Winchester Arms Company of New Jersey. I know you like Winchester. They're about ready to go bankrupt, by the way. However, the manufacturer would refer the request back to their North Carolina state branch, which would then call the order into the local Wilmington branch. Once the state branch learned from the local branch that the purchasers were black, the state branch would refuse to fill the order. So despite it being legal for blacks to own and purchase guns, well, that's nice, they were unable to procure any for their defense except a few men who owned old army muskets or pistols. And uh, newspapers, well, what do you want? To, what do you know? The the newspapers were inciting people into believing that contra- confrontation was inevitable. So they spread rumors that uh, blacks were purchasing all that they were they were amassing an arsenal ready to go to war. It wasn't true, and I mean, and maybe the blacks wanted to, but they weren't able to. They were unable to acquire the means of self-defense. I want to drive that point home. So whites began to suspect black leaders were conspiring in churches, making revolutionary speeches, and pleading with the community to arm themselves with bullets or to sabotage white cotton bales with kerosene and torches to fight. Now, the election happened, and uh, despite all the best efforts that the Democrats had done to try to suppress the black vote and uh, Republican supporters uh, uh, across the state, they they won. But in this town, no, no, the fusionists held on to power. Wilmington held, but not for long, because the night following the election, Democrats ordered white men to patrol the streets, expecting blacks to retaliate. However, no retaliation occurred. That's because they didn't have the means. And plus, they they won in Wilmington. When Waddell and the committee did not receive a response, okay, this is an excerpt here. I didn't know how to break this, but uh, the the, the key point here is at 7.30 a.m., about 45 minutes when he was supposed to get this response that he didn't get, this guy, the leader, Waddell, He gathered about 500 white businessmen and veterans to the Wilmington's armory. And after heavily arming themselves with rifles and the Gatlin gun at the Wilmington armory. You know, the Wilmington armory, you know, that's a government kind of thing. Just opened up its door. So once again, even though they were not the elected government officials, the mechanism of government was on their favor. After heavily arming themselves, they broke into... The Manley's Publishing Press vandalized the premises, doused the wood floors with kerosene, set the buildings on fire, and gutted the remains. At the same time, black meter, black newspapers all across the state, not just here, but, but everywhere across the state, uh, were being destroyed. And following the fire, a mob of white vigilantes swelled into about 2,000 men, 
And then they went into black Wilmington neighborhoods, destroying black businesses and property and assaulting black inhabitants with a mentality of killing, quote, every damn nigger in sight, unquote. That's Waddell. As Waddell led a group to disband and drive out the political institution of the city, the armed white mob rioted and shotguns attacking blacks throughout Wilmington, but primarily in Brooklyn, the majority black neighborhood. The small patrols were spread out over the city and continued until nightfall. Walker Taylor was authorized by Governor Russell to command the Wilmington Light Infantry Troops. And it's reported here that they intimidated both black and white crowds with rapid-fire weapons. However, it was the the black men that that were killed in that quote-unquote intimidation. So one wonders the degree to which they were really intimidating the whites or they were putting on a show. So once again, you have, again, the mechanism of government being used to attack an elected government, an elected local government. So the coup was deemed a success for the business elite. And this, by the way, you ever, you know, the Charlotte Observer still exists. So this is a quote from the Charlotte Observer quoting a prominent lawyer. And the Charlotte Observer had no problem with this, by the way. The Charlotte Observer, it's it's now a pretty far left, uh, steady uh, left uh, uh, newspaper that is dripped, dripped in racism. And this is an example. The businessmen of the state are largely responsible for the victory. We have tried to win them, the populace, back by coaxing. In doing this, we have insulted some of the best businessmen in the state. But not so this year. Not before in years have the bankmen, the millmen, and the businessmen in general, the backbone of the property interest of the state, taken such interest. They work from start to finish, and furthermore, they spend large bits of money on behalf of the cause. For several years... This class has been almost ignored. And now, and now they were victorious. And at the end of the day, the the government was done. And uh, there was no, there were no repercussions. No one did any jail time. No one was arrested. The Wilmington government, duly elected, was successfully cooed by white supremacists. With so the help is, of the government. So it was a coup d'etat against a democratically elected government of fusionists. Uh-huh. I mean, this this is a movie just waiting to happen. Where is this movie? They'll never make this movie because the no. people that might be inclined to make this movie would be the quote-unquote civil rights activists of today, whoever they are. And they wouldn't want to make this movie because this movie highlights the absurdity of gun control and why any group that feels that they are part of a disenfranchised, disempowered, targeted group would ever favor any form of gun control because that gun control is going to hurt you. When you're in the group that the government favors, when you're in the group that's benefiting from the power of the government, that's that's protecting you from fair competition 
gun control doesn't affect you. <laughs> I mean, and it may affect you if somebody breaks into your home, but most likely you're probably in a category where you can afford to pay whatever exorbitant fees you've got to pay to be one of the 3,000 in New York City to have a license to carry a gun. It's not going to affect you. It's only going to affect the poor people, the people who don't have the means, not you. But I came across a statistic years ago that in New York State, and this includes New York City and the boroughs, something like 70% of all households have guns. 70%. And I guarantee you, 50% of those are not legal. Most people in New York are armed, and that is what the liberals of New York are afraid of. They can't exert their control anymore. When you look at black people who gain some modicum of success and move out to the suburbs, you know what's one of the things they get? in addition to a nicer car and a nicer home and nicer clothes and nicer things that come with living in the suburbs, they get guns. You know why they get guns? To protect the stuff and themselves that they acquired. And I don't, it's, I don't know, I don't know the degree to which, uh, people in the various black communities across the country, are aware of this history, but if they are, and I imagine the more well-educated ones in in those communities, they probably are, then, then I don't blame them. First thing you want to do is make sure you're armed because you know you live in a country with a long history of deciding that that group is just a little bit too uppity. And when they come for you, it's not just going to be a few nut jobbers. It's going to be a whole community with the full backing of the government behind them. So don't and, tell and I'm me. Okay. Look, okay. and I am okay with being taken out. You know, it's part of life. How, how you, I don't want to get morbid, but how you die is just as important as how you live in my book. And if, if you're going to come for my guns, I'm okay going if I know that I've advanced the cause. So um, I think there's a lot – when you look on – when I look on Facebook and when I look on the internet, I find lots of conservative blacks. Not that I'm a big conservative. I'm a hardcore libertarian. Um, but I see – a movement within the black community that is different than that of the Black Panthers. They're not leftist radicals. These are middle-class working folks who go to work every day, come home, they're responsible with their family, they're responsible in the community, and they're arming themselves. And God bless them because they're, they're joining the rest of us who believe that the Second Amendment is very very important, not just to the identity of America, but to the proper function of America. Yes. And I will say, I don't need that Second Amendment. <laughs> it, well, no. it doesn't mean anything to me. No. What matters you know what? to me is that people become self-aware 
that if you do not have the means to self-defense, you by yourself and or among whatever communities that you may be a part of, be it voluntarily or otherwise, that you are in a vulnerable position. That's that's the cold, hard truth. And you live in a world, if you look around, you know there are numerous examples of of governments or even of a community of people with the blessing of government behind them deciding that somehow that they're entitled to use force to interfere with your choices in life. And so, if you're aware of that, then you know you can never surrender the means to uh, equip yourself with the tools of self-defense. And today, that happens mostly to be guns. They're not the only means so, of self-defense, but they're a major one. So my the Second Amendment doesn't really guarantee my right to self-defense. It's my guns that guarantee the Second Amendment and all the other amendments and everything that is moral. I don't want to say legal because we covered that bridge earlier. Yeah, legal that, legal it does not equal moral. Correct. So it is the Second Amendment that backs my morality uh, and secures that other people act morally towards me. Uh, when, when you're afraid that I might shoot back at you, and it might just not be me, but it might be all my neighbors too, then you're going to think twice about acting immorally towards me. And that is a great comfort to me. And to give that up because of some school shooting is not going to happen. No, nah, it's not going to happen. I don't care. I don't care what laws you passed. I don't care about your public opinion polls at the end of the day. And I'm not alone. There's there's millions more like me, like like me. Unfortunately, Tens of millions, I will add hundreds this. Of millions. I will add this, and I want to walk on this very carefully. I'm be very guarded. I, I'm hope. I'm going to try to be guarded here. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that they they understand how 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 important it is to the to the stability of a free society for individuals to be able to equip themselves with the tools of self defense, or the, just the tools of defense, that. They're the same group of people that have, uh, I'm going to say, an incredibly exaggerated respect for the authorities that are the ones that are going to enforce these rules if they're passed. And I mean the police. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not crying out. Oh, cops are evil. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that here. I am just saying you tend to have an uncritical eye towards law enforcement and you need to fix that and you need to fix that in a hurry because I can guarantee you that none of these laws will have any effect whatsoever unless some shiny badge people sign up on that dotted line metaphorically to go out and make the dreams come true for the people who wrote these dreams? Because that's all legislation is. It's a dream of a legislator, and it means nothing unless somebody in a shiny badge is willing to go out and make that dream come true. And and that's more likely in the big cities, but in small communities, 
where the sheriff lives among the people and the deputies live. No, no, and, no. The, no here, here's the thing. Here, here, I want to make this clear. No, I want to cut you off because I want to make this clear. And by the way, I, I switched the scene to our, our closing segment. This is We're at the closing segment here. But uh, I want to make this clear. I'm not talking. The cops are not going to go out and they're not going to try to confiscate guns. This is how the cops will enforce these laws. They will pull you over for some form of infraction. And they will discover that you have a firearm that you shouldn't have. And guess what? They're still going to write you up. They're going to write the ticket. If they have to handcuff you, they're going to handcuff you. They're going to enforce the laws on the books. I guarantee you almost every single one of them will. You no, know, they, they, they won't show up at your door. That's why you know most people will not be directly affected. But, but heaven forfend. The moment that you actually have to use a gun that you are not legally allowed to have and you use it in a way that you're not legally allowed to use it, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be prosecuted. And the cops are going to collect the evidence and do the work, do the detective work to help assure that you get convicted. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about gun confiscation. I'm talking about enforcing the law when you cross their path. And I think that's more than highly likely, even in the small towns. Yeah, but what you see happening in Connecticut where they tried this and it has completely failed... It hasn't completely uh, failed. It's still so? on the books. So if somebody has to use a weapon, I, okay. I, I can almost guarantee you if someone has to use a weapon to defend themselves, one of these weapons that they're not supposed to have, I can almost, I can't, I'm not going to guarantee it, but I can almost guarantee you they will be prosecuted. You're not going to be prosecuted now. You're only going to be prosecuted if and when you have to actually use it, which if if you can hold on to something and okay nobody's going to prosecute you until you need to use it then do you really have it because you have this thing looming over you and you need the other side of that is if 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 you know this reality what are the chances that that you might be led to make sure you finish the person off and get rid of the body cuz you got you you can't report that man you know you're done you get into I'm not a, gonna com I'm not gonna comment on that. But I'm um, just saying I'm just saying it's gonna that's gonna happen too. Look, all of unintended consequences. Look, there are lots of ways of dealing with these issues. And um when something like that does kick off, I guarantee you there's a community of people out there who have those same items that have been banned who will either shut up or put up. And that will dictate the community that you live in. Um, right now, I don't see a huge push to confiscate. That's not going to happen. Magazines. It's like if they pass. Okay, if they pass the law banning the AR-15, they're not going to. They know better. They're not stupid. They don't want to expose how truly powerless they really are. They will not pass a law and say, everybody turn in your AR-15s. No, what they'll say is, if you have an AR-15, fine, but no more AR-15s going forward. Their intent is, is, is midterm, is long-term. It's what's going on in the future. So 
they they they're not going to stop you from what you have now. They're going to stop the next generation from having what you have, well, and then the next generation having even less. That's, that's the game they're playing. Well, that is the game they're playing, but they they're also afraid of something else that if they push too far, that the people who are pushing for these laws are going to end up with bullets in their faces. Because that's a possibility as well. Because the threat. Look, speaking purely hypothetically, if someone is going to diminish my ability to defend myself against the state or criminals or whoever, and they're active in doing that, and they succeed in limiting my ability to defend myself, they are a mortal threat to me and to my community. Hypothetically, purely hypothetically, why wouldn't I take that guy out? What do I have to lose? Exactly. If my right. kids are going to be slaves to the state, I would see it as a great honor to take the son of a bitch out, hypothetically, to ensure that my kids don't live like slaves. And I think that is that is a reality that a lot of people run through their minds when they're pushing these scenarios. I mean, the minute that... Um, I mean, I hear stories and I know people. The minute that a judge is threatened, his life is threatened because he did something bad, like he sentenced children to uh, institutions that were paying him to sentence these kids. The minute a parent comes out and says, I'm going to kill the son of a bitch, he disappears. That fear, dro fear drives people. And pain, as the ancient Greeks used to say, Pain is the greatest teacher. And when you start feeling the pain of fear, then it dictates your behavior and it modifies your behavior. And if lawmakers out there think for a minute, you know, there's 320 million guns in this country. And if I make some of them illegal and piss people off, they might come after me. You know, maybe I'm not going to be the one who's going to push this, this agenda. I'll, I'll let the other guy do it. Because right. think about it. These lawyers are... I caught myself. These lawyers <laughs> are job. weasels. These lawyers are weasels who look for semantic operators. That's what they, they are. Well, they are they are opportunists, and an opportunist is not going to get going to profit or gain some political advantage by getting shot in the face or pissing people off who want to shoot him in the face. Purely hypothetical. But, yeah. but those arguments ring in people's heads, and you can only push the arguments so far before people start to respond, and people have responded. You look at what happened in Nevada, where these Bundys resisted the federal government. Now they're suing the federal government. I love that. The, now That's these politicians awesome. are thinking, hey, maybe I shouldn't take on people like this because I might get Bundied too. You know, maybe they're going to resist. And, you know, if I push this too far and people get hurt, maybe people are going to show up to my house with guns. And, you know, that's a pretty tall tree. I bet you I could see a, a rope hanging from that tree. I'd, I'd hate to get hung from that tree. Yeah, people really think about what scenarios can develop around them. And even the politician and the absolute most powerful people know that in the United States, at least, they are not completely untouchable. The great thing about America 
that differentiates this country from the rest is that there still is some fear of the people by the government where in most other countries it's the people that fear the government take the guns away from the people in america and you're exactly the same as every other country in the world so i'm gonna i'm gonna share some closing. yeah and i'm gonna share some closing notes here and then we'll we'll wrap this up on the on the youtube version and after we wrap it up on the youtube version gotta go through and we do have some comments and i will try to uh we'll 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 look at the comments so what we went through here these excerpts they only highlight what for me are the most jarring examples of how laws have been used to target an undesired minority and how those laws then tilted the balance of force power heavily towards the accepted groups in this case we're talking about blacks being in the undesired minor minority and white supremacists being in the accepted the accepted group. But tomorrow, who knows? I don't know what group will be deemed undesired and what groups will be favored. So if you're unfortunate enough to find yourself, be it by choice or biological circumstance, with one of the undesired minorities, and you currently support gun control, one day you may be, as the saying goes, hoisted on your own petard, done in but your own anti-human, anti-liberty, anti-progress work. And, and this presentation, it only touched upon one aspect of gun control. Could you not do that? Yeah, that. Not do that. So this presentation only touched upon one aspect of gun control, the racist element. Sorry. Implied in this, sometimes explicitly, but mostly implicitly, implicitly, also lies the element of class control. And we're going to talk about that in a future episode, I'm sure. Gun Amen. control is... Gun control is and always will be the oppressor of the poor and the undesired minorities. For the ones with means who will have ways to be afforded access to self-defense that those without means living in a land with gun control will not be able to afford that access. In short, gun control is racist, classist, and it is the very fuel of tyrants and it is why i would like me... to add sexist but please go on oh yes and and it, and it is why for me it is not a debate point i don't care about statistics i don't care about feels i don't care about your fear i understand the reality of power if you can bring more force power to bear than i can then I'm going to end up either dead or enslaved. And so be it. That's the way it goes. But that is the reality that you have to deal with. You are never going to persuade people like me that, that there is such a thing as common sense gun laws. Never. <laughs> I will never be even interested in the phrase common sense and law. See, common sense and law, they don't go together. 
No, there is such a there is something called common sense gun laws, and that's called the fewer gun laws, the more common sense. Yeah, absolutely. You want you want gun laws? Pass less of them and let allow the people in the inner cities and the underclasses to arm themselves. If if you're afraid of those people arming themselves, you're on the wrong side of history and you're on the wrong side of decency. Do you have any last remarks for our YouTube audience? And by the way, if you're watching this on YouTube, you could have seen it live and seen more on the Liberty Principle Facebook page. I'll have a note to the or a, a link to the Facebook page in the description for the YouTube channel. Do you have any last remarks for our YouTube audience before I, I shut them down? Which means? Go with goodness. Go with goodness. And uh, we'll see you, uh, well, I'll see you tomorrow night on, uh, I, uh, on Is Daily Tuesday with Bodhi Agora. And we'll be back here next week on Is Daily Monday with Professor Rambo.